I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, Gino Cheerio returns as we celebrate October baseball, even though our beloved Southsiders were bounced from the playoffs. Gino and I are not talking about his Harvard Business Review article. Instead, we're talking about one of our innovation, customer experience, and baseball heroes, Bill Veck. Veck, as in Rec, was a promoter, an innovator, and a romantic. Through his journey, we're able to see a true innovation and customer experience pioneer. Bill Veck created some of the most iconic experiences in Chicago baseball. He installed the Ivy at Wrigley Field, as well as its classic scoreboard. He designed the exploding scoreboard at Comiskey Park and was in charge during the Sox infamous Disco Demolition Night promotion. Vex's promotional stunts and support for players, from integration and the support of Kurt Flood's free agency, enraged baseball's white-collar and, frankly, boring ownership. Yet he engaged with and enthralled fans. Gino and I look at Vex's inventions through the lens of Doblin's 10 types of innovation to highlight innovation and engagement across an array of categories. Deep down, Gino and I believe that Vec was the inspiration for Dos Equis' most interesting man in the world. Bill was a pioneer in a free spirit that demonstrated the importance of bringing your authentic self to work. As Vec said, quote, I was in the game for love. After all, where else can an old-timer with one leg who can't hear or see live like a king while doing the only thing I wanted to do? End quote. Thanks to Gino for taking the time to join me and help explore the innovation and genius that was Bill Veck. I hope you enjoyed the episode. What's behind your theory of showmanship in baseball? Well, I happen to have a very ridiculous theory, according to great many uh, ball club operators, that it should be fun. You know, I don't think that baseball is such a grim, serious thing. Sure, I don't want to interfere with the game, but I do want everyone who comes out to the ballpark to have fun. And look, let's face it, often the ball game is not the most exciting thing that ever's happened. Gino, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. For our listeners, we are doing a special episode. The themes of the podcast always you know, tend to focus on innovation, creativity, collaboration, persistence, and... For this kind of October edition, Gino and I want to talk about one of our our heroes, uh, two-time White Sox owner, and so much more than that, but Bill Veck. So we thought it'd be fun to uh, kind of dig into the lifetimes and stunts of of Bill Veck. And for folks that don't know, you know, kind of the the short version uh, of this, and we'll we'll dig into so much so much more. But uh, Bill Veck. You know, just the the basics, right? He was born 1914, uh, Hinsdale, Illinois, died January 1986. He was a uh, major league baseball owner uh, multiple times for the White Sox, uh, owned uh, Cleveland Indians, owned the St. Louis Browns, and then owned the Brewers when they were AAA. Uh, He has come up with so many stunts that we'll dig into, Uh, was inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, in 1991, and also had a wooden leg due to injuries uh, he sustained uh, as a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. But tons of tons of innovation. So, Gino, thanks for for joining me. If we start just on a particular stunt or innovation, is there one that sticks out to you of a, a vet creation? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, disco demolition. That rock fans under the influence of beer and drugs and armed with disco records 
They had been invited to destroy. Don't mix with baseball. It's interesting. We'll talk more about this as we uh, as we get into things a little bit more. That it's it's interesting to me how those are the kinds of things that we remember, and yet even in preparing for for this conversation and knowing quite a bit about him, learning more and more about him. Um, is really, I don't know, it's interesting. There's so many things that are far more significant about his contributions than those kinds of things. But disco demolition. Yeah. Right on. I Yeah, and I'm going to go with the exploding sc- scoreboard first yeah. at uh, introduced at Comiskey. But I think it's for Chicago baseball lovers, just knowing that uh, basically two of the icons in center field in Chicago are the exploding scoreboard on the south side and the north side is the IV and the uh, the scoreboard there. And all of those were actually uh, VEC uh, creations. That was from a play by the fellow by the name of Soroyan. And uh, show a time of your life, if you remember, there was a sitting in the back of the saloon. Every once in a while, a guy would come up and get another roll of nickels and he'd go back and play a pinball game. And nothing happened and nothing happened. But you knew what is uh, there's some point to this. And just before the final curtain, he hits the jackpot and everything happened. The whole board exploded, the flags came up, it played Dixie. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. Because that emphasizes the importance of home. Home runs really basically are strangely enough, except for the result, are dull. Because it happens so fast. It isn't like a triple with a basis pool with everybody running and keep running. It's just boom and it's gone. So I thought, ah, we'll try and make this more dramatic. Yeah, which is crazy when you think about, um, I mean, as a Sox fan myself, right, and people knowing him primarily from the Sox, right, more than the White Sox, the uh, connections to the Cubs are probably not well known, and especially not things like uh, that have significance far beyond right, an individual team that he owned, like the White Sox, to Ivy, the Ivy on the walls of Wrigley. I mean, right. I, I doubt many people would, would know that he was responsible for that. Yeah, and another uh, another keeping things in Chicago right, is uh, bringing Harry Carey to to the Sox, and then Harry stayed in Chicago and is probably most well known for his time in Chicago uh, with the Cubs rather than the Sox. He's the only owner I've ever run across who really thinks about the the enjoyment of the fan. He always thinks in terms of what can he do to make the fan have more fun at the ballpark than they normally would have. I was going to say, and he started the uh, take me out to the ball game, right? Singing, take me out to the ball game at Comiskey, and he had to talk Harry into doing it. Yeah, it did you? Yeah, I, and and uh, is the the story as I understand it was he he saw Harry doing it, just singing along, uh, mm-hmm. and then recorded him. And then asked him to do it, and and when Harry was hesitant, he said, "Well, I have you record. I'll either way, <laughs> you're singing." We go down to the bottom half of the seven. Still the Red Sox seven, White Sox nothing. All right, everybody. Okay, Nancy. That speaks to, I don't know, a lot of the way he was wired and 
why I said what I said before about him. He really thought differently and, and approached things in we'll call them unconventional ways. Uh, right. I go far beyond just, you know, the kinds of gimmicks and novelty that he's he's often known for. Right. That'd be really in a ballpark. Uh, an Eskimo pie. But to give one person 30,000 Eskimo pies, now that causes some interesting thought. What are they going to do with them? What happens when they start to melt? You know, are they, how fast are they going to pass them around or are they going to try and eat them themselves? You see, that's the thing that makes a promotion work. Incongruity. Yeah, and a co- uh, caveat for the the listeners too. I think that uh, as you know, as we dig into Bill Veck, uh, you know, I guess I'll, two pieces of advice from my grandfather, who was also a, a Sox fan. But one is, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? So we've we've done research. So as far as I know, these are all true. Uh, but in my heart, I want to believe all these things that we we talk about are true today. And uh, in the both, I think my my grandfather and, and Vec were both romantics, and I remember good advice about getting married was my my grandfather told me if you uh, if she can't find you handsome, hopefully she can find you romantic. So uh, something to be said about uh, about romance and heart, and so I think I think we'll dig into to that a bunch here. So uh, when you were doing your research, probably uh, what surprised you the most uh, that may, maybe you either knew or something that was completely new about Vec? I, I didn't know the extent to which he was responsible for making progress on integration in baseball. Um, and that's one of the things that, that those kind of, those are the kinds of things that stood out to me because I knew about you know, disco demolition and all of the stunts that he that he pulled, um, which were, you know, inten- intended to attract people to write his specific team. Uh, but there are things that just transcended the individual uh, franchises that he was part of. And integration was definitely one of them uh, on a number of levels, whether it was from, uh, you know, being, whether it was the impact on the American League, right after Jackie Robinson, whether it was um, Minnie Minoso, yeah. Being the first black Cuban player, whether uh, it even would be, you know, previous to that, uh, started seeing some uh, some comments about his desire to integrate baseball back even five years before Jackie Robinson, when uh, he was looking to buy the Phillies and he was he was intending to buy the Phillies and then create an integrated team to be competitive, right, and to make that kind of progress. From what I understand, which I did not know. Yeah, I knew the uh, I knew the Larry Doby uh, part, right? So integrating the American League and then also right, assigned Satchel Page to you know uh, after after decades in the Negro Leagues, uh, basically signing him as a uh, oldest rookie and to the the Cleveland Indians. But yeah, that was that was new to uh, me, knowing that he had actually intended to uh, integrate baseball before Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers. And uh, from an from an innovation, and we'll call it maybe innovation and, and uh, stunts f- front, but I know one of the things that uh, we put a challenge out there for ourselves because we actually we do this with clients, and I do this with students in my innovation class is uh, 
trying to get people to think that innovation is 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 more than just shiny technology. And so we use Doblin's ten types of of innovation, which you know are configuration, offering, and experience are kind of the three big groups. And folks can look this up, but we'll we'll go through these just to show how it was innovative, kind of across a spectrum from profit models, from networks, from structure, to the process itself, to to what the offering was, and then. Uh, I also, I think, you know, he was a, a pioneer when it comes to customer experience. And so on Doblin's like experience side, you look at service, you look at the channel delivery, you look at the brand itself, and then customer engagement, which I would argue was his strongest, uh, like, you know, that's, that might be where he was seen as kind of, a, you know, a Barnum or a promoter, uh, but I think so much more. But when we dig into some of those other elements, you actually see how innovative VEC was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if we just started walking through some of the, like just in order, we got the profit model, right? And uh, so, a few things that he's credited with, right, is uh, some of the ways that he treated player salaries and free agency, but then also the rent a player. You want to talk a little bit about that, that rent a player model? Yeah, it's funny. This is one of the things I didn't know either. Uh, until I started digging into doing research. And you think about the impact that this idea had and how far back it went, right? That at the kind of the origins of free agency and trying to uh, to use, I guess, a new, you know, a new way uh, within baseball uh, of free agency that would allow players to obviously move teams, uh, unlike they, they really had the ability to previously. Uh, it ultimately started to come down to deepest pockets. In baseball, it always comes down to the Yankees. Who's kidding who, right? Right, right. And so how do you start, how do you compete with the be a myth in an industry? In that industry, it's the Yankees. And uh, try to create ways and uh, use changes, uh, just different ways of approaching things to be able to get some sort of an advantage. And the rent-a-player idea was really based upon once a player was coming, was going through his final year of his contract. Uh, and the team may not have had an interest in signing him. Uh, what they would do is go through the process, right, of trading and, and renting a player for the remainder of the season. And now it's almost, you know, a standard operating procedure for all baseball teams that are in any kind of a, a pennant race or, you know, in, intending to get in one, that at the trade deadline they rent players. And then they hope to sign him or they just use him for the year. And it's just – it's incredible to me to think that, uh, that he had pioneered that idea um, and started implementing it, and most of which I think at the time was born out of the need to just continually maintain, like find ways to be competitive as a smaller market team, right, against uh, lots of deeper pockets. You just continued to be creative, and that was one of the ways. Yeah, and that, and, and some of that, like even rooted in a little bit of a stunt, right, where he and Roland Heeman, who was a general manager at the time, uh, Kind of in the almost in the in the offseason notion that they they actually conducted four trades in a hotel lobby in view of the public. Yeah, and and then actually tying two of those things together from an integration standpoint, and you know believing in the players, uh, he was the only baseball owner to testify in support of Kurt Flood uh, when uh, Flood, you know, his career and kind of that landmark court case was. Uh, really introducing free agency. And, and I thought it was interesting that Vec was the only 
only owner that would uh, basically testify in support of a player. Which I think just speaks to kind of the relationship that he had with players, um, versus you know kind of a general looking at looking at players as, as some type of uh, commodity in the system, but that these are actually humans and and respecting people in the stands uh, on the field as players. I think mm-hmm. it went a long way for, for for people kind of putting up with Vic. Yeah, and I think it. I mean, it made a huge difference. Uh, in a, uh, a Sports Illustrated that I, uh, I found in my my own archives from 1960, they had made reference to the fact that, you know, he was probably the ultimate player's owner. Um, I don't know if anybody has, you know, surpassed that or done, uh, had the same kinds of relationships that he had with players uh, since, you know, the, the, the uh, article came out in the 60s. But, um he just, he went above and beyond for players and treated them as human beings. And that didn't treat them, your point as a commodity. Um, and uh, there were a lot of examples that were even uh, that I've seen over the course of time. And some in this article about him protecting players from all kinds of stuff, like even moving out of his own house and having a player move in because he couldn't find a place for his family to stay. I mean, just like things that, you know, you wouldn't see happening and that just appeared to come naturally to him. And I think, and that's why, he had that kind of a connection and it, it made a huge difference. Obviously when you start to talk about recruiting players um, and about having uh, your kind of reputation throughout the business uh, kind of ripple. And, and I think he had, I think that was something that was very different uh, for him personally. I think it's something that uh, I think contributed to his success. And it's one of those things that kind of runs across his entire, uh, his life um, that has significance beyond just, you know, silly stunts like this good demolition. Yeah, and like uh, still moving through a little bit more on uh, the the ten types, and just also a, a shout out to uh, Adam Hansen, who's who's been on the podcast before, but in his in his book that he co-authored uh, with uh, Ed Harrington and uh, Best Stores, outsmart your instincts. Right? They one of the things he highlights in there is that really breakthrough innovations. Are, are at the same time leveraging uh, three or more of, of Doblin's ten types, so you can kind of obviously see see how Vec had had all these in. But on the network side, we talked about the Globetrotters, a circus connection, circus background, uh, and then also his work with the Negro Leagues. You want to talk a little bit about that? Um, I mean, he had a he had a good relationship, strong relationship with uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but with the uh, owner of the Harlem Globetrotters, it's probably not a big surprise. Uh, but he had, you know, lots of different connections like that. And with the circus that uh, he would do tons of promos and leverage those relationships. Uh, I guess with anyone that considered uh, baseball or sports or right to be in the inter- the world of entertainment and then even going beyond and, and having that mentality of the circus itself, uh, he tried to buy Ringling Brothers at one point, I saw, uh, um, which is funny. And then I think his first wife actually was in the circus, uh, which is funny. And she, there's a quote where she said, I thought when I married Bill, I was leaving the circus. But yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be around. I mean, from, from a distance, seems like, you know, he'd be a great guy to hang out at the park with and have beers. But I don't, I don't know if I'd want to be his spouse. Yeah, but I think that the uh, the network connections that he had, um, 
I think were part of, you know, but a more minor part of, of the way that he leveraged, I don't know what he did best for innovation because some of the other buckets and some of the other types are far more prominent of, of, in my opinion. Right. Right. Um, even uh, structure, you know, just, ta- you know, kind of the, the alignment of talents and assets, but the way that he was able to, to get people in the games right, and looking at uh, these kind of overlap, but looking at revenue models and, and you and I have talked about this in the, in the past, but just the importance of it. It's not just a winning team, right? For a fan that that's important, but uh, the, the way that he looked at getting, getting talents and assets to attract people to the games uh, was, was incredible. Yeah. Um, and Maddox Douglas, we did a cert, uh, study for ESPN for more than a decade um, about what it means. What's, what do fans really value? And the, and the prevailing attitude is that winning is right, paramount. There's nothing else that really contributes. And the reality was that it, it, I don't think it ever got higher than eight on the list of what fans said was really valuable to them. Um, and I remember it being as low as 14. But it's one of those things that um, I actually thought of it specifically in, in some of the quotes I saw from Beck as I was digging into things. And uh, if it's all right, I want to read this yep, one. Absolutely. Like super insightful into the way that he saw the world, which was amazing to me. Uh, and, and how he really had some really deep understanding of emotional and psychological aspects of people that he, that he delivered and, and acted on in very kind of real world every man ways, which I think was is really unique and ahead of its time. Uh, what he said was, this is an illusionary business. The fan comes away from the ballpark with nothing more to show for it than what's in his mind. An ephemeral feeling of having better entertained. You've got to heighten and preserve that illusion. You've got to give them vivid pictures to carry away in his head. Right? And then he continues to say, the most exalted illusion of all is the only guarantee of prosperity in baseball is a winner. But that illusion must be augmented by a feeling that it was fun to be at the ball game. You know, and I think that just sums it up because that is what he believed. Winning was important, and he did win uh, because of being very creative and using from a process. With, you know, the next one on the list, the process, his process of going about creating teams and just doing things was so different that you know, he did end up having success on the field in terms of winning. Uh, but he also understood that it was more than that, that the experience was critical. And that's why I agree with you that experience, those experience, and especially that customer engagement bucket are really where he was right, at his best. Nothing is any better just because it costs more. And I think that's a mistake that we've made in our society is because is correlating cost with value and cost with return. And they have no correlation. And I guess you learn that because you see a ball player who gets a million dollars who can't play, you know? At $100,000, he would be stealing. And the fact is you pay him a million dollars doesn't make him that much better and it doesn't mean that you've gotten that much greater return and that's true of well how much money can you pay a tulip to bloom 
you know? And how much more can you play a song to hum? So I wonder, I wonder what relationship money has to, to being happy, to enjoying your world and your life. I think very little. Yeah, and uh, back to uh, kind of the winning and some of the other things. <laughs> Another quote from him that I, I love is, uh, after a month or so in St. Louis, we were looking around desperately for a way to draw a few people into the ballpark. It'd be perfectly clear that time that the ball club wasn't going to do it unaided. I have always operated on the theory that your fans are customers or patrons, but more nearly our friends, should be treated exactly the same way in a ballpark, as far as it's humanly possible, as if they were in your home. Because in reality, they are guests, with one exception. Really, maybe that you're the guest, and the ballpark belongs to them more accurately than it belongs to you. You're merely the custodian of their ballpark. So I've tried to operate it that way. And then you have these really little things from an experience standpoint that he did when uh, when he first bought the White Sox and Comiskey was a you know a dungeon. People it was dark, it was yep. you know, stinky, it was not it wasn't a place that you know that families would go. Um, and he knew he understood what it meant to to really create an experience and be more welcoming. I mean he painted the place white to make it brighter. He took down a lot of the overhangs, like just little things that make a big difference. Um, even a story that I saw about uh, handing out rain capes to people, but he had a, he had a relationship that he had built with, um, I don't know, the, the Chicago land weather bureau, I guess, something yeah. uh, where they would uh, let him know when they, when rain was supposed to be coming through. And then he would make sure to hand out rain capes to everybody that was exposed before the rain came in, because he said, Right in true understanding of of people and, and experiences, you have to give them the cape before it rains. Right? Right. So we needed to know when it was likely to rain so we could hand them out. It doesn't do any good once they're wet. It's simple, <laughs> right? Four and a half cents, I think, each of the capes cost, and he was like, "It's that's nothing, right?" Because of the the memory that it, and and the care that that uh, that shows, it's not. It doesn't even. It becomes inconsequential the actual cost of the cape. Yeah, I know. And uh, another another thing, just kind of going through Doblin's 10 types a little bit, uh, you know, the process model, we kind of spoke to that, conducting business on his own terms, doing deals in the lobby, uh, listening to fans and taking care of players, I think kind of all throw into process. And again, some of these can go into experience, but um, you know, one of the big things that I think we take for granted in uh in professional sports is names on the backs of jerseys. And the story that I heard was that uh, Vec was known for spending time uh, in and around the park during the, making himself accessible, but also like just really understanding the customer experience, right? Not, not from an owner's box. And uh, one in, in, before names were introduced, he was sitting down and he was talking to a, a fan and she said, that it would be easier to root if I knew who I was rooting for. And 
lo and behold, then we have uh, names on the backs of jerseys. And as you noted, there are two teams that don't do that on the road. Yeah. Right. New York and Boston, I believe, are are the two teams that don't put their last names on. The, and I I always thought that was so. It's it's harder to to mock a player, you know, when they're where they're a less friendly environment when they're on the road. But uh, if anytime you see names on jerseys, you can tie that back to Bill Vec. Yeah, I mean, I just. I've always attributed not having names on the back of jerseys to uh, arrogance, quite frankly, Matt. <laughs> it's these teams that believe that their players would be known by everyone because they're the Yankees, right? Or they're the <laughs> Or, you know, so I don't know. That's just me being, I guess, a White Sox fan. Um, you know, but it really is, I mean, it, that is a perfect example of what you were talking about before, about him really understanding, him listening, using empathy, understanding what what it was like to be a fan and asking and sitting and getting information and using it just, you know, rather than, you know, the ownership of the Yankees at the time, right, trying to continue to, you know, spend money, keep a lot of restrictions on things, right, not listening to people. I mean, it's the way that most, most people operate, most companies operate. It's the way most companies operate today, for crying out loud. So, just amazing that he would he would listen he would take the time to actually to talk and think and understand what it was like to be a fan something that simple could be that transformative in sports i mean if ever the sport there's no choice i'm at least in the major sports you've got right football everybody's got their name on the back right in basketball they've got their names on the back of their jerseys and, and the only exceptions are a couple of them in baseball it's just significant yeah, and uh, understanding the crowd, and especially maybe more more of a, a blue collar element. But another quote from from Vec that I love is, "I've discovered in twenty years of moving around a ballpark that the knowledge of the game is usually in inverse proportion to the price of the seats." Yeah. yeah. And as a fan, I think anywhere I've gone, I've I tend to have more fun in the cheap seats and talking with folks <laughs> both. Both, you know, kind of whether we're rooting for the same team or uh, having having some fun adversarial conversations. But, yeah, I love, uh, you know, even uh, going back to old Blackhawk hockey right at the uh, at the Chicago Stadium. I mean, and, and it still holds true with United Center, but the 300 level seats, I feel, are a lot more uh, entertaining. Uh, they're not as comfortable, but uh, it's a little bit more entertaining to talk to other fans up there. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that that's true of the seven dollar seats at uh, at the cell, <laughs> but you know, you don't. I, mean, I can't say that I've ever bought the seven dollar seats, but even if you do, you don't you don't have to sit up there because there's no one there. Hopefully, there will be now. But yeah, yes, it was a tough. It was we got it. We we got a taste again of what uh, October baseball can be like in Chicago. Yeah, yeah and it was Let's, fun. I mean, I'm with you though on the. Um, he, he really saw things as, I don't know, he tried to see things through the lens of a, of a real fan because he was not, he was a, an every man kind of guy. He was not pretentious by any stretch and he did not fit into the mold of the rest of the league. And that's why you think about the network conversation we just had. And yes, he leveraged some of his network, but man, he didn't, he had some people within the, the world of baseball that were right close to him, but man, all the other owners for the most part, couldn't stand him because he, he right. didn't do things the way things had been done. And, you know, it's funny how, how seriously we take sports, 
And at the time when he was making, you know, these kinds of decisions, he's made, you know, making deals in a lobby or he's, you know, doing all kinds of stunts and that the, the other owners thought he was what, insulting the game. And they don't realize that the word game is in that sentence. You know, you can look at it a bunch of different ways. And so how to be competitive, how to be able to do something that is, that's different. Right. And not worry about the way things have been. It's hard to do. And he did it consistently over the course of time and he just didn't back down. He lost sometimes quite a bit, but. Yeah. And I do feel like the point, you know, the game and having fun uh, that, you know, not just not taking yourself too seriously where, you know, like it seems like the rest the rest of ownership, it's, it's very serious and this is how we do things. And um, you know, in, any team that I've been a part of both in sports and business, you know, those that take themselves too seriously, they're no fun. Right. But, you know, I, that's why I always try to coach folks on, uh, you know, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I think one of the things that Vec was phenomenal at was not taking himself too seriously. I, I would agree with that. You mentioned his, his uh, peg leg before. <laughs> yes. Right. And he smoked a tongue <laughs> yes. and carved, carved holes for ashtrays in his leg. I mean, you know, like what's a, a, a trick? Uh, I don't know. Gag. It's just funny. He just, he, you could tell he did not take himself seriously, even though he was a very, he was a deep thinker. And, you know, he had a lot going on and he just, he never took himself too seriously because uh, he never, he certainly never conformed to the way things were done. I don't think that's, that's probably an understatement. Yeah. Yeah. A couple peg leg stories. One is a friend of mine from high school had moved to Rockford uh, from Chicago. Uh, and this was, this is towards the end of uh, Vec's life. And, you know, Vec is really done with baseball. Uh, although, you know, the, you know, the, you can find film of this still the highlight for him would actually was to go back and sit, sit in the bleachers at Wrigley was where he really enjoyed himself. But uh, my friend said that as a little kid, he would see Vex just sitting out on the front steps of his house, <laughs> smoking and also uh, painting his, his, his peg leg, like taking his wooden leg off and painting it a new color to, to, uh, you know, brighten things up, spruce it up. And he would, uh, <laughs> back to his commitment talking to others he would actually ask my friend what color uh he thinks he should paint the leg (laughs) i can't imagine can you imagine like being around any uh owner and just having a conversation but i can't or or them having an ashtray in their leg (laughs) right i can't imagine i can't imagine like many people that period that you'd have that conversation with, right? Much less somebody who had owned a bunch of baseball teams, you know, it's just, it's crazy. So uh, on the, the, the product system uh, innovation, I think that for me, the biggest one there was uh, when he, when he bought Cleveland and we should say went bought it, he, he usually couldn't do this by himself right? it was, it was a lot of organizing groups that he would be the principal on. But uh, when he was the owner of, uh, the Indians, one of the first things he did was uh, make radio broadcasts available for fans. Yeah, I mean, that's another one of the things that's more significant, right? I, I tried to put them almost in buckets myself because yeah. it's like, you, know, you don't want to get distracted by, I mean, we haven't mentioned some of them, some of the stunts, right? But right, right. I mean, like Disco Demolition or, you know, even hiring, you know, Max Pack and the, you know, the, the, the clown the, prince of baseball. 
I mean, to, to be the coach, I mean, there's, right. just, there's so many things, um, so many things that he's, you know, that he's known for and, and we're more kind of stunts and, but I was, I was putting the buckets of like, that's like novelty for attraction to his team at the time, right. To just get some attention. Right. And that's all they were for. And then you have these superior experiences that are intended to drive attendance because he understood from a profit model standpoint that attendance was critical. Then you, you layer on top something like making sure that people could enjoy the game, even if they weren't able to come to the park by broadcasting on radio, coming from a guy who understood the value to franchises uh, of generating attendance. And I want to come back to some of the attendance numbers that he was yeah, yeah, yeah. ridiculous. Um, and then there's these other couple of buckets that were like ideas that change the game, which are like, you know, the Ivy and taking out the ball game and, scoreboards but free agency right and this is one of them it's like the radio broadcasting and even then the subsequent idea of, of revenue sharing which they didn't pass then because of yankees right um, <laughs> right but ultimately sports i, I don't know I, baseball is you know an outlier on so many like you know the salary cap it's got the stupid luxury tax right so but you think about revenue sharing for small markets to maintain some sort of competitive balance and everything to say, to have him come up with that at that time, right. After uh, introducing radio to the mix in the first place, just crazy. Yeah. And sorry. And then uh, I forgot, I was going to say the, just the other peg leg story is kind of <laughs> jumping into a little bit of that spectacle, but uh, 1976 bicentennial, right. Kind of the, the famous painting of uh, the guys marching the drum and the, the fife player. <laughs> so, so Vec played the role of the fife player because of his peg leg. And and they marched around marched around Comiskey <laughs> to celebrate the bicentennial. It's funny. You know, it's interesting. I'm sorry, just this is a yeah. kind of a side a tangential thought, but it's interesting that while we know that there were a lot of overlaps with the Cubs, right? His dad worked for the Cubs, was president of the Cubs. Um, right. We talked about Ivy, we talked about Harry yeah. and all that. It's almost interesting how he was creating what was almost the anti-Cubs at the time. Like he was trying to be the anti-Yankees, clearly. Right. But it's interesting how he understood the value. And we'll talk about brand, I guess, as one of the, the 10 yep. types too. But just the way that he understood how to be able to generate an identity and it was consistent with who he was. You know what I mean? That was about fun and not taking yourself too seriously and certainly not being pretentious and not taking the game too seriously. Uh, I just find super interesting because uh, it was necessary because you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to compete otherwise, you know? Yeah. And back to kind of that authenticity of who he was, uh, you know, was it, was it the first time or the second time that he owned the socks, but the, in the grand lore of old Comiskey, right. Is the Bard's room. Uh, and that was his office where um, he took the doors off. So you could, if you were walking by, you could just drop in and talk to Vec, have a beer, have a smoke with him. Uh, but just, I mean, from a leadership standpoint, we're not, you know, not in Doblin's 10 types, but right from a leadership standpoint, truly having an, a, an open door policy where he removed a physical door from an owner's uh, office. Yeah, I mean, right. It's It may not be one of, you know, the things within the 10 types, but there are things that I, I definitely consider to be in the bucket of innovation uh, and important to doing things differently, right, that aren't covered in those types. And that's one of them, right? Being able to be 
I don't know. He would take ideas from anywhere too, clearly from fans, from right. But he wouldn't even stick to even decisions he made. The when, when he was in St. Louis, um, Lou Boudreau played for him and was also the manager at the time. That's when he brought in Patkin to be the the, the manager. But Boudreau was really the manager. He was playing at the same time, and uh, he traded him. And fans went crazy. So he he, he like okay, fine, I won't. And he didn't, and he signed him to a new deal instead. It's like, who does that? You don't, it just doesn't happen, you know? Yeah, and we, we, we've talked about brand a little bit and uh, kind of last last big bucket uh, that we just jump around and all, all of the other crazy stuff. But customer engagement, we talked about how he'd talk to fans. Uh, he'd do customer research by talking to cabbies when you get to a town uh, on, on because they'd be listening to sports radio. Uh, but we talked about names on jerseys, some of the experiences like the exploding scoreboard, the Ivy, uh, and like you said, you know, like even your research backs up, uh, you know, giving people more to, to root for, uh, than, a than a score. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so many different things to kind of unpack there. And this one goes into, uh, don't let the truth get in the way of the good story, but would he own the brewers? The right field fence. Yeah. You're familiar with this one? Yeah. <laughs> I well, I mean, I learned more about it and digging in, and I, I had heard something about it, but I mean that, go ahead though. So he I I wish I could see it, but from I, I believe it was in in his, his book, uh Vec as in Rec. Um right. So right field, uh he put up a 20-foot screen or chain link fence on wheels that they would wheel out when the other team was up to bat. <laughs> so pull hitters would have, you know, have a hard time with a homer and then they wheel it back when their team was up, which led to a change in baseball is that the, the stadium has to be kind of a permanent structure that it can't be adjusted uh, mid game. But I, I just love that he, he thought, well, there, there's no rule against it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to wheel out a fence. See, I mean, that's, that's one of those, there's no rule against it, right? Yeah, right. They, they ultimately made a bunch of rules because yeah. of the stuff that he pulled, right? But that's, you know, I mean, you could consider, you think about, uh, I don't know, the Belichicks of the world, right? And the Spygate yeah. and the, all the right. stuff. They'll do anything for an advantage, right? Even if it's bending the rules. Like, he was just out there like, well, nobody says I can't do this. It's a good idea. Like, why wouldn't anybody else do this, right? <laughs> make it harder for the other team. Make it easier for our team. All right, let's go. And then yeah, he, it, it, so he figures out a different way. And one of his quotes related to that was, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity. <laughs> I think he probably lived his life by that <laughs> one quote, because that's an example of it for sure. You know, I was looking for another one. I saw another story about the fact that he had uh, he, the fence in center field in one of the stadiums. He would move in and out. Uh, by, it moved like 15 feet. And then the rule that they made about the, the fence moving or the screen moving, um, like a similar one was you can't, there can be no changes like that to the fence, right? To the distance to, for a home run. And during the course of the season, it has to be the same because he would move it in and out. It's like, who does that? He does. Yeah. And uh, talking about customer engagement too, I think another, another thing, God, I would love to see something similar, but the, uh, uh, and going back to his his a uh, nod to the crowd knowing what to do, right? It was Grandstand Manager's Day. Yeah. yeah. So, I uh, 
I saw a picture of one of the cards, but uh, for folks listening, the basic idea is they handed out cards for the crowd to vote on big in-game strategic decisions. So what they were going to do and and the uh, the card that I said I saw said yank the bum. So I'm assuming it was if they were going to leave their pitcher in. Uh, and it's I think it's worth noting it's you know an N of one, but uh, St. Louis Browns won that game, uh, snapping a four game losing streak. Yeah, right. That's classic. I, I actually had never <laughs> seen that. That was one of the placards that you could hold up, which is you know which makes it even better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Uh, Bond pinch hitter and feel back, right? With question marks, it's like, and then they vote on it. I think it's awesome. It's like you think about the uh, the little, you know, the when you're at a conference. When we used to go to those, right? We'll go again, right. and, so forth, and you'd have the the voting, you know, via either Twitter or through the the program they've got, the app that they've got there, um, and how rarely that's still done, right? I mean, it happens on social media. Yeah, to do that in a park then right it's just it's so ahead of its time I mean, they don't even ask you that now right they don't even want to open the can of worms right they say pull the bum right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and, and then one other quote from Vec that i think is great about being authentic knowing who you are right and i mean even i know this is a big thing for maddox douglas right when when you guys are doing work is <laughs> do you know what business you're in, right? Just really knowing yourself and knowing your superpowers, but on an individual level, right? This quote from Vec, I try not to kid myself, you know, I, I don't mind romancing somebody else, but to fool yourself is pretty devastating and dangerous. And I think he he knew what he was trying to accomplish. Yeah. And a lot of it, I think, was, can you imagine, like, here, here's part of, here's my romanticized version of, Vec loved baseball. He loved sitting out there. He loved chat with people. What are ways that I can always go to a baseball game, right? Right. And right. You know, and just if anybody gets on you for having a beer, you just tell you're you're out there doing research. You're just sitting with folks having a beer, and and I yeah. I I still need to find it. I used to have a picture of Harry Carey and Bill Vack. Uh, sometimes Harry would broadcast from the bleachers hmm. at uh, Comiskey, yeah. and there's a picture of the two of them shirts off <laughs> sitting in the sunshine with stacks of beer cups in front of them. I don't know how deep we were into the game, but just again, you, unfortunately, I think we see so many polished versions of sports and, and where, where the networks and the owner, they're, they're trying to put forth this, this image that that's not necessarily that fun. I mean, there's, there's great technology things that where you get more access to the game or having, having, players mic'd up but but the idea also of uh uh sitting topless in in center field with beer cups i don't think you would see that today you wouldn't see that today um you're right i wish we would see it today to be honest with you though i mean you think about the ways that small market teams or i don't know i mean it, it's primarily small market teams but even somebody like i guess oakland small market to begin with right thinking about yeah. a's and on one hand, with Moneyball and with what uh, Billy Bean's been able to do over the course of time, and I, you know what, we lost to the A's in this year's playoffs, and you know if we're going to lose to somebody, that's that's who it should be because he's done amazing things, right? To find ways to win and maintain competitiveness in uh, a world that isn't fair and it's not 
It isn't even. It's not an even playing field. He can't sign all the players the Yankees can. He has to get in the playoffs every year. And he's done an amazing job. Now, that's one way of doing it. That's, you know, pure process and structure and configuration on the back end, right, to put a product out that is competitive. Or you can go right, the VEC route and have, right, yeah, you put winning teams on the field and thought about it differently, but also, right, have this brand of fun. You just don't find it anymore. Um, you think about the Raiders. That's where I was going with them. Yeah. You know, in Oakland, Al Davis had a very specific personality for that team. He was more of, you know, he wasn't in cut from the same mold as a lot of the owners like him or, or dislike him. Um, but you just don't see that kind of, you don't see that kind of personality anymore where, where uh, teams will really, you know, have fun and, and uh, not take the game so seriously in a lot of ways, which is a shame. Yeah. And uh, also just doing the right thing. Uh, just a, a couple things on on VEC doing the right thing. And we, we talked about um, integration uh, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the story exactly. But it's after Adobe came in right with Cleveland and the manager walked around and introduced uh, Adobe to everybody. Right. And and handshakes like just just being a good person, being a gentleman. And the story is there were three players that would not extend uh, their hand to shake Doby's hand. And by the next year, Vec had gotten rid of all three of those players. Yeah. And so I do, I, I really appreciate, you know, look, there's, they're still doing things the right way. Another, another fan favorite too. I think we didn't, uh, or well, Maybe not fan favorite, but a story that I liked about. Uh, Do you ever hear the story about? Uh, um, was it was Eric Soderholm. He was coming off of a knee injury, and so he signed as a uh, a free agent. I think so. With the Sox, and so um, so he he said when he signed, one of the first things he wanted to do was go see uh, go see Vec, uh, but Vec was in the hospital for emphysema. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, but this is this is uh, around the this, um, you know kind of the uh, White Sox you know seventy seven hitmen uh, where they I think in seventy seven they actually might have even though they didn't win I think they might have set Comiskey attendance records for that season. Yeah. But uh, Soderholm then goes to the hospital, sees Vec, and in the hospital said he said there he had his his his, his leg out using the ashtray, uh, but he just wanted to thank. Vec for taking a chance on him said, I'm, I think I'm going to have a good season for you. And Vec said, we we're, we'd love to see it. We're counting on you. And when the year was over, I think Soderholm hit like 280, 25, 30 home runs, something like, you know, so good production. And uh, there was a note in his locker at, at the end of the, at the end of the season from Vec is have your, have your agent uh, stop by the office. They come in and then uh, Vec gave him a two-year extension for I think twice what he was making in that that single uh, free agent year. Yeah. yeah. So you got him taking care of players, and then then I was going to say kind of like from from Sox kind of maybe a, a fan favorite that you said, Minnie Minoso, right? So <laughs> Vec working with Minnie to give Minnie a contract in, in these different decades that he was alive. So that is, I believe, is it, is it five decades that Mickey Min- <laughs> Minnie Minoso played uh, and has uh, 
uh, a major league contract in five different decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that one is one of those that, uh, that I've you know, heard about a bunch of times. It's White Sox lore. Right. And especially when you start to think about the fact that, uh, you know, Minnie Minoso, um, he signed Minnie Minoso when he was with Cleveland, when he owned the Indians. And then subsequently, Minoso got traded to the White Sox mm-hmm. after, uh, after Beckett sold the Indians. But he, he right, wasn't going to own the White Sox for quite a while. And in the meantime, Minnie Minoso became Mr. White Sox. Right, you know? and then uh, he got traded away in like '57. Then in '59, right, we win the pennant for the first time in like 40 years, and that's when right the first year that Beck owned owned the team, and uh, he ended up giving him an honorary championship ring because he, he meant so much to the city and to the team. And it was just interesting how the their worlds kind of I don't know intersected in different ways. That he brought him into the league, and then right he became a great White Sox player. Um, even before Vecco and the Sox, you know, just kind of interesting. And then to have him, you know, then allow him to come back and play in five decades, you know, and subsequent decades, I think is awesome. It's fun. Yeah. And on an innovation standpoint, I know one of the things that um, as we were getting ready for, for this episode, you admit like just his ability to change with the times mm-hmm. uh, and his ability to adapt. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I and mean, I think that that is one of, kind of the, the big themes that I, you, I took away from as I was digging and learning more about him is I knew that he had the, uh, an interesting and unique way of approaching things and looking at the world, but you know, the, the, the world he was operating in, right. Especially during the war. Um, and as he was moving out of the war and then into the sixties and seventies and, uh, in ownership, he was able to adapt in ways that were surprising. You know, it just, to be able to think about new ways of, of going about this game that he had been part of for so long that a lot of the other owners just really didn't, I don't know that they really cared to. Um, maybe it was born of necessity. Maybe it was just, you know, part of the way that he thought and operated or maybe both, uh, which is why he ended up being uh, successful in it and being who he was. But yeah, I mean, he just, the adaptation uh, throughout time, like, I mean, just some of the promotion, some of the, we'll call them experiences that he delivered. Uh, at one point uh, during the war, because there were people working overnight shifts uh, in some of the war factories, he had breakfast baseball. And it's just like, all right, well, in that time, like for breakfast baseball, you had people in night shirts, right? Or rushers in night shirts, standing out coffee and, and uh, like Danishes, right? To watch the baseball. Because that's right. you adapt to the world the way it is. And then you try to create experiences for people and create connections. And he continued to do it over the course of time. I mean, even, you know, when you think about something as simple as disco demolition, just understanding the power, right, at that point in time of the base that he was right, trying to, to connect with and just all kinds of things. And it went horribly wrong or horribly right, right, in so many ways. It's just you, couldn't have, you couldn't have hoped for it to turn out like that, you know? Um, the forfeit and the second game of a double header. I mean, come on, you know, uh, but just understanding, I don't know, just understanding people and really being empathetic and then uh, understanding what people want, what fans want and knowing in different times how to be able to adapt to it. It's just, it's rare to see that happen. I mean, because he was such a baseball guy, right. In 
terms of him being in baseball that long. He just continued to try new things and see things differently and, and adapt, which is crazy to me. I mean, it was quite a long, it's a long time, you know, yeah. to continue to adapt. Yeah, and just thinking thinking back, a uh, quick question for you: how How did you become a Sox fan? Well, so growing up, my dad my dad's a Cubs fan, um, and growing up, um, I committed what you know in Chicago, I guess, is cardinal sin, right? And I, I can't say cardinal, but I don't care anymore. <laughs> as a you know, uh, I rooted for both of them because I love yeah. baseball. You know, I, I just you know, and uh, to this day, I'm not a hater. I had fun with it. Yep. Right. I had fun yep. with it, but not a hater. Um, and, uh, you know, over the course of time, I mean, obviously the personality of the team, uh, being more connected to it through uh, other people in my family, right, extended family on my side, and then marrying into a, a diehard Sox family. Uh, ultimately, right, there were no choices, right? <laughs> the kid, my kids were going to grow up Sox fans, right? And so – it just starts to, to become more and more ingrained. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it was something I root for both for quite a while and then went all in on the socks, um, you know, because of, you know, family. Why else do you do that? Right. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm a third generation socks fan on both sides of the family. And my, my dad, when he was a little kid lived on the 2200 block of North Racine. So like he would walk to Wrigley, he would catch games at Wrigley and then, you know, his family, uh, moved out to the the Burbs, Mountain Prospect, but I, I'm I'm guessing that Mountain Prospect is predominantly Cubs fans. But I think you know the the '59 kind of go go Sox, right? The, so that first era of uh, Vec ownership of the Sox. You know, my dad was probably like uh, 10 years old, right? So I think just really caught his imagination, and I know his favorite player was was Nellie Fox. So I think that kind of cemented it there for him. Uh, and then my grandfather. On my mom's side, you know, he worked a factory job and Cubs didn't have lights, right? So it was like, who could he catch when he was done with work uh, was the, you know, it was the Sox. So catching those broadcasts. So I just, I thought it was interesting when you talked about kind of that war effort too of changing schedules, but uh, the the Cubs, you, you know, you couldn't, it was hard to be a fan if you worked during the day. Just ask Lee Elia. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, during the day unless of course you're an out of work bum right (laughs) um so and a lot of swear words in there yeah you know it's funny you just said my prospect that's where i grew up oh right on right on yeah mostly coach fans um yeah so i i think gene i think we uh we need to go talk about uh after this we should we should talk about how we can convert the uh the bill vec workshop for <laughs> companies looking to do sustainable innovation we can just use case studies of of bill vec to to help companies see more possibilities well i'll tell you so i know you're probably only half joking <laughs> right and i'll say there aren't that many examples um of an individual or or an organization that I can think of that really would be a better candidate for something like that because you know his his why and his purpose for doing what he did uh, he was anchored in some very you know important principles on one hand like people mattered um, don't take yourself too seriously right all the and then he was you know he was also anchored in the fact that uh, you need 
you know, you have fun and make sure that uh, you, you operate according to your principles, but you can do, you can operate the hows you can do in very different ways. And so I think you know, from that standpoint, that's a pretty good example of uh, across the board of ways you could create a workshop around it. Because if, as long as you know who you are and you know your principles and your purpose and your why, and then you can start to you know be clear on, on making decisions, you can do it in ways that are different than the ways that everybody else is doing or that you've done it before. It's a pretty good case study in itself. Absolutely. Gino, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And I, I hope uh, I hope we've uh, maybe cultivated some more VEC fans out there. And as all Chicago fans tend to lament, next year. Next year. <laughs> next year. Man, thanks for having me. This was uh, my pleasure. It was, uh, it was fun to dig in a little bit more and learn about them. And obviously, I'll talk with you anytime. I'll talk with you about the White Sox anytime. So, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thanks. All right. Take care, man. Today isn't so bad. It could be a lot worse, but tomorrow is going to be great. You know, and, and tomorrow never comes. Because you see, by the time tomorrow comes, it's today. So it's as worst as it could be is it's pretty good. And if it doesn't come, that would be terrible. In other words, in other words I've had enough problems physically to recognize that it's just great to be around. Mm -hmm.